there are just a few of us tonight, but we're going to have a good discussion. I feel like I shouldn't be up here. I feel like I should be down amongst you. Does the camera matter? What would you guys prefer? Okay, then I'm going to do it. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Thanks, sir. I mean, I'm a, it's the right size for the podium. Okay, this is better. Let's begin by approaching the Lord. <coughs> Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come together again and to, to look into your word and to see how you are revealed your son is revealed on every page, how it is a glorious testimony to who you are, to what you are, and to what you've done. So I pray that you will bless this time, that your spirit will open our eyes so that we may see you more clearly. Help us to know you better, to love you more, and to be obedient to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so... Uh, Last week, did Hoyt leave off on 14 or 15? 15. Okay. Well, today, I want to backtrack one verse and look at Titus 2, verse 14. Because there's actually quite a bit. Actually, what I want to do is look at Titus 2, 11 through 14, again, briefly, but I really want to zero in on 2.14. So, speaking broadly, and I don't know if, if this point was really made, but 11 through 14 is actually uh, one of the best summaries of New Testament theology to be found in the entire New Testament. So let me, let me read that, just those four verses, and then we can kind of pull it apart as we zero in on uh, 2.14. <clears throat> and again, this is at the conclusion of his advice to various members, I mean, class, uh, not classes, but categories of people within the church. So now he's speaking to all followers of Christ, and he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing <coughs> of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So that right there is actually a very succinct but very detailed summary of New Testament theology. But as we will see as we progress tonight, it's actually encapsulating a significant chunk of the Old Testament as well. And there's some very powerful indicators to that. But let's talk about just the, the whole, all four verses in, in, a, in a general context first. In, it's talking about Christ in verse 11. How do we, how do we know that? Where do, where do we see that it is talking about Christ? True. And what did it do besides bring salvation? It appeared. So the grace of God appeared. And that's, that's actually in a lot of ways similar to how we see Christ appearing and dwelling among us in the prologue to John in John 1. So he appeared amongst us. And John himself says in 1 John, what did, how, did we, how did he, we, experience Christ? That which we have seen and heard and touched with our hands. So he literally, he, he didn't just appear amongst us, but he was amongst us. And so here Paul is, is pointing to that appearing in our midst. So in, in, chap, in verse 11, it all begins with the incarnation. So everything that is good is going to flow out of that. So it all begins. So in, when he begins this summary, he says, for the grace of God has appeared. So the incarnation is what brings salvation for all people. And then in verse 12, we see that this leads to a life of denying evil and practicing good. And that the in verse 13, we see that the return of Christ is the incentive for good conduct. And then in verse 14, it is, we are through that we are realizing personal holiness and good works which point towards the atonement. So all of this, the denying evil and the practicing of good, are rooted in the atonement and the expectation of the return of Christ. That actually sounds close to what James is saying. You know, that faith without works is meaningless. So so too here is is this is the the atonement and the is pointing us towards right living. We see that in verse 12. But what I really, so th that really is a, a very short, succinct summary of, of what Christ's work is and what our response to it should be. But what I really want to zero in on tonight is at the very end of verse 14. It says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What does that mean, in his own 
possession. Where have we seen that before? Have we seen that statement anywhere else in the New Testament? No, but the first part is getting there. It's in 1 Peter. So why don't you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Well, Peter is quoting from something else as well. But I want to work our way backwards in the, in the proper order. So f- turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And let me just tell you guys right now, if I say 2 Peter... That means I'm, that means First Peter chapter two because I keep I've been doing that the last hour. I keep thinking to myself, Second Peter when I mean First Peter chapter two. Um, that happens to me all the time. I'm terrible with numbers. So, uh, Peter, Peter says, speaking to believers, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So there again, you see that statement, his own possession. And any time you see phrases being repeated, there's a few things that we should zero in on. So first of all, we should wonder if it's in the New Testament and we see phrases being repeated, we should wonder if that seems familiar to us, we should think, is that a quotation from the Old Testament? Now, sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it might be a phrase that seems familiar to us because it's somewhere else in the New Testament. But we should wonder, just in terms of our Bible study, is that something that is quoting from the Old Testament? And in this case... Peter and Paul are both quoting from the Old Testament. They're both referring back to an Old Testament concept, which we're going to get to here in in just a minute. But Peter is pointing people, pointing out to, to Christians that we belong to God, that we are his chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So being a people of his own possession consists of those three things, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. And there's a lot that goes into that. And it's a little off topic, but in the next verse, in in verse 10, Peter then goes on to quote from Hosea quite a bit. He, he's quoting from Hosea 1, 6, 1, 9, and 1, 10. And what is the book of Hosea about? What's the main thrust of Hosea? Well, Hosea, he's a prophet, but he has the, the strangest prophetic ministry of all the prophets because God calls him to marry a prostitute. And he 
he lives out as, as an example of God's relationship with his chosen people, with his bride, his, you know, Israel. So the way that Gomer continues to be faithless to Hosea and to stray from him and to, uh, I'll put it nicely, to cheat on him with, with other men is a depiction of how the nation, how God's chosen people for his own possession uh, continue to be faithless to him and to stray from him and to cheat, to put it nicely, on him with other gods. And so, but the fact that Peter is pointing out to believers that they are a people for his own possession, and that with that comes being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. And then to see him follow that up by referencing what's going on, what, what happens in Hosea. Because here, I'll just, I'll just read it. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So if we go back to Hosea, let's, let's read that. So Hosea chapter 1, and I think I'm the probably the slowest Bible page turner ever, so please bear with me. Okay, chapter 1, verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her the daughter, no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. And what does he say in chapter, in verse 10? He says, once you had not received mercy, but now you will receive mercy. But then you turn to verse 9, and he says, And the Lord said, call his name another son, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. So here Peter is in saying that we, have, that, that we are a people for his own possession and then following that up by remedying, the, the, they're not quite curses, but the, the judgments that were put on Israel in Hosea it's a very strong connection between Israel of the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. Does that make sense? So when it says in Hosea that, you know, in this place where you were called not my people, but you will now be called the children of the living God, we are the children of the living God. So we, we the church, are a fulfillment of that prophecy. Are we Abraham's children? 
Not physically, but spiritually we are. Are we not? Spiritually we are. So yes and no is the correct answer. So, so that's, that's kind of a, a broader context there for 1 Peter 2.9. But what is 1 Peter, or what is 1 Peter? What is Peter drawing on? Well, he's drawing on more Old Testament theology. And I, 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 I can't stress this enough, but the Old Testament is, is absolutely essential to the New Testament. That seems like, well, that's obvious, Bubba. But, I mean, we don't necessarily really process what that actually means. And, and I, I just, again and again and again, I am reminded of how so many times Christ was preached from the Old Testament. And, you know, you, but you read it, and it's like it's just a bunch of stories, and it doesn't make sense sometimes, and Isaiah is just filled with all this stuff, and I don't see it. But God was putting that there, inspiring those texts for a reason, and they are all pointing to Christ. And the more that we immerse ourselves in the Old Testament and understand that, the more we see the potency of what's said in the New and how what was promised in the Old, in places where we don't even think to see it, is fulfilled in the New. So that's kind of what I want to talk about tonight is, is what was Peter and Paul talking about when they say a people for his own possession. And to do that, we need to look at Exodus chapter 19. And this, this is, is one of the absolute essential texts of the Old Testament. Really, there's, there's two focal points in the Old Testament. One is called the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6.4. Does anyone know what that one is? Yep, you're on it. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall have the Lord your God with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That is, I mean, that's the distillation even further of what we are called to do, is it not? So, I mean, that's, that is the great clarion call of, of the Old Testament. Is for, this is, God is one and we are to love him with all our soul, all our heart, and all our might. Everything we have, we lay before him. That's what we are to do. So the Shema, and it's, the Shema, it's called the Shema because the, the word in, in Hebrew for here is Shema. So when you read it in Hebrew, it would say Shema Israel. You know, that's, it just means here, O Israel. So that's the great kind of summary of the Old Testament, but the, the practical distillation of that is Exodus 19, 
six or five and six. And that's because th th this is really the heart of the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible, which govern the rest of the Old Testament. And it's the classic expression of the nature and purpose of a theocratic government with us under in it. What, what is a theocratic government? Yeah, it's a government by, by God. So think about Judges, the book of Judges. Did Israel have a king? Who was in charge? Sometimes the judges. Were there always judges? No, he called them when they, when they were needed, but there weren't judges all the time. That's because who was really supposed to be their king at that point? God was. And the people finally rebelled, and they did. Now, God in the law had made provision for a king because one day there would be a king. Who was that? Yes. So the idea of a king is not, God is not against that, but he's the king, and he wants his people to see him as the king. And so their first king, who, who was their first king? Saul. And who picked him? Well, the people did, because he was good looking. And how did that work out? Not so good. And then God picked David. And how is David described? What? Homely. More important than his physical appearance, how is he described? As what? True. Exactly, a man after God's own heart. That's in, there's a couple places where it says that. Acts 13.22 is, is one of them. But yeah, he's, he's a man after God's own heart, which really, if people are going to follow a king and God wants to be their king, would it not make sense that the king that really epitomizes a king, a godly king is a man after God's own heart? So God picked a man to be his king who would rule, albeit sinfully, as God would rule. And ultimately, he is both the literal physical ancestor to, but also the image of who? Jesus Christ. So it's pointing to that. And the fact that the people's first king, the failed king, was was picked by man, but the, the godly king was picked by God, was appropriate. And so, but God wants to be king. That's the point. He wants to be the king. And so, Exodus 19, 5 and 6, is encapsulating Israel's relationship with God not just God, but God, the king. And so it says, <clears throat> Now therefore you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests 
a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So what do we see in 2 Peter? There, I said it again. 1 Peter chapter 2. What do we see in 1 Peter chapter 2? What does is, what is Peter say that the church is going to be? The people for his own possession who are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. So here you see in, in Exodus 2, you see the, his own possession, and then you see the royal priesthood and the holy nation. So those are absolutely essential things. And if you think that Paul in Titus isn't looking back at these and saying the same thing, even though Peter is saying it more explicitly, then you're wrong. Because Paul absolutely is looking back at Exodus 19, and he's saying this is your relationship with God. If you do these things that he is outlining in Titus, in verses 11 through 14, then you will be redeemed out of lawlessness and purified and made a people for his own possession. Does that make sense? So Paul is absolutely pointing right back to the crux of Israel's relationship with God. But what does it mean to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Israel was to do that in the Old Testament. Are we to be that now? Yes. Yeah, so what maybe we should think about what does it mean to be those things? Because that's what he intends for us to be. So what what does that mean? Well, first of all, it's just an interesting note that this here in verse uh, verse 6, that's the first time in the Bible that the kingdom of God is mentioned. When it says a kingdom of priests, not once before that has God mentioned a kingdom, his own kingdom here on earth. So here at the, the invocation of the covenant, of the Mosaic covenant with God, where the, for the first time we're getting a fuller view of what is of what God's plan is so keep in mind you know we you go from Genesis what's Genesis 3 15 what do we call that yeah it's at the curses so it's we often call that the the proto-evangelion which just means the first good news. But here, right here at the curse, when at the, at the moment of the fall, or at the time of the fall, when God is first giving his curses out to the serpent and to Adam and to Eve, even before he has cursed Adam and Eve, he is already giving a hint of redemption to come. So when he says, I mean, it's famous, he says, I put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, you know, and, and the fact that the serpent will strike 
a non-lethal blow against the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will strike a lethal blow against the serpent, is the first news, the first good news, that the serpent will be defeated. And has anyone seen The Passion of the Christ, like the Mel Gibson movie? Okay, do you remember how it starts? What was that? Yeah, it was too long ago. Well, it starts with, with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's, he's praying, and you can kind of see in the shadows, it's like he's sweating blood. And in the meantime, in the background, you see Satan, and the serpent is kind of coming out of Satan, and Satan's cloak and approaching Christ. And then right at like the, the greatest of Christ's agonies, he's praying, he stands up, and you just see him stomp on the head of the serpent. And that was an artistic, obviously that didn't happen in the Gospels, but it's, it was an artistic image pointing back to Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. I forgot where I was going with all this. Yes, it's a winnowing process, or it's an expanding process. So where that's the first good news, and then Noah happens, and the flood happens. Noah doesn't happen, but Noah lives through the flood. And then God makes another promise. And he says, I will not judge the earth this way. And then more time elapses, and people stray from God again. And what's the next thing God does? That he calls Abraham out. And he makes a promise to Abraham. And what does he promise Abraham? Promises three things. Be a great nation, a land that is prosperous, and blessing. All the nations of the world will be blessed through him. So, and incidentally, the curses of Adam and Eve that are laid on Adam and Eve, each of those three things that are promised to Abraham in one way or another remedy each of those curses. But it's, the, it's a... It's another focus of how God is going to redeem the world from the fall. So before, we just had a statement about crushing the head, and then you have a promise not to judge the world that way, I mean, the, the way he did with the flood. And then you have a new promise to Abraham of three things, but ultimately that the whole world will be blessed through him. And how ultimately will the whole world be blessed through Abraham? Yes, by his descendant, who will bless the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And his only son is Jesus, who is a descendant of Abraham. It's not for no reason that the genealogy in Matthew is given that connects directly Abraham and Jesus. There's a reason for that. So, obviously it does in Luke as well, but Luke goes all the way back to Adam, whereas in Matthew, Jesus and Abraham are at, different, at opposite ends of the, the genealogy. But anyway, uh, so then when we get to Sinai in the Exodus, we have another new phase, or some people would say a new dispensation of how God is 
revealing how he's going to redeem the world. And that, that redemption, that, that, that new phase is going to be elaborated in the, the covenant that is made at Sinai, the, what we call the Mosaic Covenant, and the giving of the law. And ultimately, what did Christ say? He, he came to fulfill the law. So this is another important benchmark on the road to Christ. And, and the, the, the giving of the law here at Sinai is an absolutely critical event for the whole Old Testament. Everything that comes after Exodus is living in the shadow of Exodus. Every person, every Jew that's born, or every Hebrew that's born, is born under the law after Sinai. So that's most of, that's all of the Old Testament except for the, big, the first half of Exodus and Genesis. So I'm saying that's the bulk of the Old Testament is in the shadow of this. And so they are to be a chosen people, a people for his own possession. And they are to be, and, and that means that they are to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So what does that mean? Well, and why did I go through that brief accounting of all the, the ways that God has expressed the coming plan for salvation prior to that in Genesis and, and so on? Well, because what he's doing is he's establishing his people, his chosen people, to be his mediators between him and the rest of the people of the world. So when they say a royal priesthood, what does a priest do? What is a priest supposed to do? Yeah. So they're supposed to represent the people before God and express the will of God to the people. They are the peop- they're the conduits that stand before God and man. So think of the who were the the priests in the Old Testament? The Levites. And initially, who was supposed to be the priests? All of Israel. When did that change? At the golden calf. Because the nation apostatized itself. But who was the one tribe that stayed true to Moses? It was the Levites. And so, because the nation turned against God, instead of the whole nation being priests, as he originally intended, now just the Levites were to be the priests. But those priests, those Levites, were to be the means by which people connected with God. They, he, they were the ones that offered the sacrifices. They were the ones who conducted the prayers. They were the ones who carried the literal presence of God in the ark. Could a non-Levite touch the ark? No. I mean, even a Levite who was unclean couldn't touch the ark. But, so the Levites now are the people by whom they they are now the mediators between God and the rest of the people in the world. They are the ones who are offering the sacrifices to atone for the people's sins. 
So they're, they're the ones that are doing the work. Who is the priest now? Jesus Christ. He is the high priest. I mean, and that's what Hebrews, I don't want to say is all about, but that is one of the main thrusts of Hebrews. But is Christ a priest in the order of Aaron or the Levites? He's priest in the order of Melchizedek. But he's still a priest, and that's really the order. I th- well, I don't want to go into that, but, but we, God intends for us to now be priests. Because of Christ, who do we, who, who do we have to go through to have access to God? Do we have to go through any other person? Absolutely not. So we are priests, and that's what it, when he says we are, when he said, when Paul says in Titus, a people for his own possession, that phrase, his own possession, is pointing back to Exodus 19, where God says, you will be a people for my own possession. And so we see Paul looking back to that, and we see Peter looking back to that. And through Peter, we get, you know, even more explicit references to Exodus 19, where it says we are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does it mean to be a holy nation? Yeah, to be set apart, to be, to be set apart from everything else. I mean, even just the word for the church, it, you know, ekklesia in Greek means to be called out, to be set apart. How was Abraham, I mean, selected? What did God do? He, he called him out. So, and remember, I mean, I say this all the time, but what God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. And God's calling Abraham out. God's calling I- Israel out of Egypt. Those are all models for how he's going and promises for how he's going to call out his people to be what? His own possession. But in being his own possession, we are to be priests. And that means we are to represent him and connect people to him. I mean, what did, what did, what's the Great Commission? Yeah, and to baptize and make disciples. I mean, that's, that's now, that's the work of a priest to connect people to God. So, and to be a holy nation is to be, to be set apart. And, and, and in being set apart, in the Old Testament context, that was to point people in this pagan, evil, corrupt world of false gods and child sacrifice and all of these kinds of things to be a testimony Israel was to be a testimony to those people you know to the 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 rest of the world what a people that were righteous and loyal to God were to be and did they succeed at that sometimes but mostly not they didn't sometimes they did but they, by and large, didn't. But that's our role now. 
we are to be a holy nation, the church. And, you know, that means we have to be strong and we have to testify to who he is. And we have to connect people to him. So each one of us is a priest to, you know, of God, all, all of which are under the high priest, who is Christ. He's not the priest, he's the high priest. And we are his, and we are to be his priests. So Peter is not fooling around when he says that we're to be a kingdom of priests. So, and, and again, that, I mean, you can read in, in Hebrews, mostly in Hebrews 7, but elsewhere in Hebrews as well, about how Christ functions as the high priest. So, and th- I mean, that's another, it's a fabulous study. And have I told you guys, I mean, I've, I've mentioned this like seven or eight times in the last five months, but the, the you know, the passage of Hezekiah at the Passover in Second Chronicles, have I mentioned that in here at all? No? Okay, well, let's talk about that because I... It's rapidly becoming one of my favorite parts of the Bible, and it, it fits into what we're talking about. So change, tr- uh, turn to Second Chronicles 29 and 30. And, and if you've heard me say this before, please forgive me for beating the dead horse, but I just think it's wonderful, and wonderful things of God should not be said only once. So, but just to set the, the stage here, you know, Hezekiah has just become king, and he has succeeded his father Ahaz, who was king. And Ahaz was the worst of the worst. He totally apostatized against God, even though God promised to give him the greatest sign that God was with him. He said, no thanks. Literally, he just said, no thanks. And he became a Baal worshiper, and he started Baal worship in the temple and it even says that he passed his son through the fires of Molech, which means, I mean, he burnt his own sons alive. So ancestors of Christ were sacrificed to Baal in human, practi- in human sacrifice practice. And that's how dark Ahaz was. But his son, Hezekiah, succeeds him. And incidentally, Ahaz, too, before I go into Hezekiah, his real name is Yehoahaz. And the Yaho part is, means Yahweh, but he just cut that off and just went by Ahaz. So, but Hezekiah becomes king, and he is a righteous and faithful king. And he is like no other king. There were good kings before him, but none were like him except David. He was the great king. And so he becomes king, and he goes to the temple, and he calls the Levites there. And there's just a handful of Levites who are still ritually clean enough to do the work of cleaning the temple of all of the filth that Ahaz had put in there. And so he, he tells them, purify yourselves and get to work cleaning the temple. And so they do. And they, he says, start consecrating other or sanctifying other Levites to become priests. And so they get the temple all cleaned out and they resume sacrifices. And then they decide to hold the Passover. And at the same time this has been going on, Israel, the northern kingdom, has been destroyed. 
and Assyria has come down and deported most of the people and destroyed the kingdom. So Hezekiah was the last king to have a, a counterpart in Israel, and then Israel will be destroyed. And so he says in preparation for the Passover, he sends messengers up into the, the remnant of the northern kingdom, and he says, come down, turn away from your father's foolishness, celebrate Passover with us, and make yourself right with God. And most of the mess people scoffed at the messengers, but it says that some of them went down to Jerusalem and to join into the, the festival. And so, but as this crowd and all the people are just, who are just feeling the relief of being made right with God after 20 years of Baal worship, you know, and just, you can feel when you read this whole passage in 29 and 30, you can just feel the joy that people have in, in being restored into a proper relationship with God. And it got to the point that there were so many people in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and that there were so many people who came down from the northern kingdom and swelled the ranks of the people in Jerusalem that most of them were not ritually clean in order to actually celebrate the Passover, that they were unclean. And so if you look, let's just, I'll start reading in, in chapter 30, verse 18, it says, For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, those are from the northern kingdom, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. So they did everything right, except they hadn't been clean. For Hezekiah, and now this is the key part, because here Hezekiah, is he a Levite or is he from a different tribe? Which tribe? Correct. So he's from the tribe of Judah. So what, according to the law, gives him the right or the role to function as a priest? Nothing. Except he's functioning in the role as the high priest of Melchizedek. He is the king in Jerusalem, just as, just as Melchizedek was. So he's operating outside the law. And listen to what it says he does. Uh, for they had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as described, prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And that's, in Hebrews 7, that's what Christ is doing now. In, he is a priest of the order of Melchizedek, which is a higher order. He is a priest who is praying on behalf of his people before the Father, and God heals his people. Does that make sense? It's beautiful. This passage with Hezekiah is just fantastic. It's just a great picture of the work of Christ who is constantly forever interceding on behalf of his people but we in being a people for his own possession we are to be a kingdom of priests and that's 
what we should be doing as well. I mean, we can't do what Christ can do, but we should be constantly praying and functioning as a priest, interceding and praying that God will heal his people. Now, he will not listen to us. I mean, he will listen to us, but Christ does the work. And so who do we point people to? To Christ. And Christ will do that work. So we are to be priests under the high priest. So all of this that I'm talking about, all of this is embedded in Titus 2.14 when Paul says, a people for his own possession. Because that phrase is a very explicit point back to Exodus 19.5 and 6. Does that make sense? So, and the New Testament is filled with this. I mean, it is filled from beginning to end. It is steeped in the theology of the Old Testament. So, and, and you know, we ignore that at our poverty. So I, I just, I hope tonight this has given you something to think about. And, and maybe just when you read things in the Old Testament, you know, just pray for that God will give you more clarity or give you resources or people to help to see these things and, and, and to know him better. I mean, I think knowing, seeing Hezekiah and how he prays for his people and God heals them, how he functions as the priest, praying for the unclean people and interceding on their behalf and God heals them is a great picture of what Christ does for us. He is praying for a bunch of unclean people and God hears his prayer and intercedes on our behalf. So I'll just stop there, I guess. I had another page of notes to do, but I don't know that we want to be here for another hour. So any questions? What? Later? Sure. Well, anytime. I'm happy to. Sure. So, okay, no questions. Then I will close in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for this opportunity to delve into your word, to know that you, our Lord, are the high priest, that you are interceding on our behalf, that you intercede with the Father, that you go before him on our behalf and that we because of you through you are healed it's a marvelous thing thank you for your word that reveals it to us pray that you will strengthen us through the meditation on these things we ask all of this in the name of your son our high priest and great shepherd of the sheep by the power of the spirit amen <coughs>